I'm your host, Bree. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Bree podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. For this week's special episode of Small Cups of Tea, I am joined by my guest, Austin City Council member, Jimmy Flanagan. Councilmember Jimmy Flanagan was elected to serve the people of Austin City Council District 6 in 2016. As a small business owner and community advocate living in far northwest Austin since his college days, he brings a unique perspective to representing the geographically largest and farthest district from City Hall. Hello, Jimmy. <laughs> Hi. I tried to read your full fancy bio and even you were like, just let's just. <laughs> it's a full bio fantasy. Not everyone can handle it. <laughs> it's like, you know what? We're friends. We're going to just ixnay all the fancy things and just talk that. to you. Uh, I was trying to think when we first met. I know we like mm-hmm. officially met two years ago at Unite the Fight. Um, when I was working for Out Youth and Aubrey introduced us. Oh, yeah. But I've been following you since you got elected because the year you got elected, I had moved here that year. And so like with you being the first openly gay city council member, I was like, I must watch this person. <laughs> well, <laughs> first openly gay man. First, first openly gay, gay man. man. Correct. R- Randy Shade was the first and she uh, she broke that barrier on the city council back in 2009. See, you learn something new every day, people. Um, she also, like, I think, was the first council council member to be pregnant while serving on the dais. <sighs> she was amazing. Right. Yeah, I just can't. Uh, well, I'm excited to finally have you on the show. You were one of the top, like, number one people I had in mind when I started this show. Um, Ooh, I love mostly because whenever you and I get together, we just go on tangents, and I. It's true. <laughs> and I, <laughs> love I love anyone who could just riff a conversation with me. So. I know with a lot, a lot's been going on between, you know, city council votes and, you know, defunding the police and policing and protest and the pandemic and Project Connect. And so for today, I just wanted to sit and chat with you about any and all the things wherever this conversation leads us. But, you know, as we continue to see how our country, but specifically here in Austin, is, is shaped by, you know, what's going on with Black Lives Matter and, and COVID, I just, I had to have you on to, to chat. So... Here there we is go. a lot to cover. <laughs> there is a lot to cover. So much. Um, I think for me, I really want to start with policing. Um, I had a friend of mine who worked with Austin Justice Coalition on, and we talked about defunding the police. But I wanted your perspective on on this and policing in general and, you know, what defunding the police means to you. I have recently learned that a lot of people are afraid of that term and have been doing some research and trying to explain better that it's mostly reallocating funds, but I, I wanted to get your perspective on it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I posted on my official city website, atxd6.org um, over two weeks ago now addressing that very topic. 
Um, it's important that we don't get tripped up in the words. It's important that we stay focused on, on the outcomes and the strategies that are being debated. Also, you know, the council took that big vote um, almost two weeks ago now, and it, it as, as symbolic and important as that vote was, it didn't actually change anything. That as, as is the process, and it's often misrepresented by the media because it's just very easy to confuse, resolutions, which is what we passed, do not have the effect of law. They are advisory to the city manager. And so we said in that meeting, hey, manager, we would love to see some changes in the tactics police use. We would love to see here some ideas about how we could rethink the funding of public safety in our community. Uh, we want to see you come back with how we're going to measure success. What are the metrics? So we could go through this whole process, but if we don't agree up front what we're measuring, we'll not know if we were successful at the end. But the fourth thing, the fourth thing was an ordinance. And that it does have the effect of law, but all that did was make me in charge of this. <laughs> so I am now, I was the chair of the council's judicial committee, and we now have reformed that into the public safety committee and expanded its purview over police, fire, EMS, and code enforcement, uh, and including the municipal court. And I am still its chair. And it, it, uh, it is not lost on me the, the, tr the amount of trust that's been placed in my office, in my hands, for the only white dude who's not the mayor to be the chair of public safety in this moment. And, and I, I take that, that responsibility very seriously. Yeah, I know with, you know, the budget that was passed, the, I can't think of it now, my brain like deletes things after a couple of weeks, but um, it was the vote where you, um, Natasha, Delia, um, and Greg all voted no when everyone else voted yes. Is that the one you're talking about referring to with the big vote? No, so that was the week prior. So, okay. so there, I'm glad that you made that distinction. So there was a vote the week prior where there was already a thing on the agenda. There was already a thing that was like, hey, accept this grant money from the state in order to do vehicle theft programming, vehicle abatement kind of stuff. And it's a grant that the city has accepted for many years in a row. And, you know, it, it covers, I think, if I remember the conversation, three detectives. Um, it's just kind of the practice of the city. So staff hadn't really thought through how that would look on that particular agenda. And so it was just part of the regular business. But by the time we got to the end of the meeting, it was very clear that we weren't doing regular business anymore. And the things that we have considered to be common practice maybe aren't appropriate in this uncommon moment. And that applies to everything that we've done over the last two weeks. You know, the, the, the package of resolutions, the metrics, the tactics, the budget, and the committee, those four things. And then Councilmember Hopper Madison had one about housing, but, but the four really targeted policing were co-sponsored unanimously by the council. That is unprecedented. And it's hard to kind of articulate that because it's very much like inner, inside baseball, uh, bureaucratic, like, like, does it really matter? I mean, I don't know that it really matters, but it was a symbol in a moment where we needed a clear symbol. And that vote the week prior on the, on the budget or the grant money was ultimately a symbolic one. And four of us, I think, saw how important that symbology would be. And it, only a few days later, we unanimously as a council endorsed the package of amendments. So, you know, people are, are, are taking different paths to understanding the work. And I'm really proud of that the council came around. And, and to my knowledge, we are the only city where the council is unanimously endorsing the path for doing this reform. So Austin really is, is in a position to, to lead on innovation. 
I know. <laughs> I'm currently in the mode of deciding if I'm moving to Philly or not. And every time I like think I'm out, something happens and it pulls me back in. Because I mean, living, don't make that face, living here <laughs> for, <laughs> for four years has been, has really molded me and, and, you know, getting to know our council members and, you know, really being involved in local politics and, you know, going to meetings where we're not in the middle of a pandemic and just seeing how many people in our city actually care and knowing that there's still so much work to do. And I don't think I realized that until I sat and listened to that city council meeting, the last one we had before y'all went on recess of how many people were calling and like just, you know, how different viewpoints were living in the same city. Like everyone thinks Austin's this very liberal progressive place. And then for me to hear calls that weren't aligned with that, it was just, it kind of lit a fire back in me like maybe I shouldn't leave yet. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the time isn't now. So yeah. And, and especially if we think about how much the pandemic has shaped so many things, especially here in Travis County. I mean, I feel like, you know, we were doing pretty well. Um, the mayor kind of shut everything down super quickly. If you remember, you know, South by was canceled really early and everyone thought it was him sort of jumping the gun. And it turns out, you know, we we've now seen that it was a really great call to make. Um, I think seen- Mayor Adler, Mayor Adler canceling South by will be remembered in history as the moment when things got serious. Yeah. At least in the, on the American side. Yeah. And, and because it's an international event, right? It's not small potatoes. People were and, angry. And they were so angry, angry. And I was holding meetings that night in my council being in my council office down at city hall, which was awkward because it was also the people's gallery event. And so every year we open up city halls, all this uh, local artist art that we put up on the walls and we change it out every year. And so that was the night of the people's gallery. We open up all the doors and everybody come in. But I had my door closed because I was convening uh, music industry folks, venues, uh, economic development to think about how we're going to proceed in, in knowing that South by just as it by itself, in many ways, funds the entire year for music venues and musicians and all of the related industries like event production and event management, that kind of stuff. And it's... It, it's it, we're seeing the ramifications of that, right? We're seeing some venue closures and we're seeing some business closures and the council and, and, and myself and a few of my colleagues have been working very hard on that, passing resolutions, creating new programs, funding those programs. Um, but, but this is a problem that's bigger than one city can solve the pandemic. And yeah. well, I mean, frankly, all the problems, right? Policing is not going to get quote solved by, by the city of Austin, but you know, we might be in a position to try things that other cities couldn't find the will to try. And that, that's, that gets me excited because I think Austin really is a city that thinks of itself as an innovator, even if we fall short. Mm. And I feel like on some level, that's the American story. You know, you have the whole American exceptionalism thing and you can go down that conversation. But to me, American exceptionalism and the lesser known Austin exceptionalism is less, less about things being perfect now and more about the acknowledgement that perfection is worth seeking and that change is worth trying. Yeah. And that's what gets me excited about being on the city council and being the chair of the public safety committee. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, if we go back to the conversation about South by and the pandemic and, you know, here in Austin, you know, all the ordinances that were put into place because the week we all went into quarantine was the weekend of my 30th birthday. So I was having feelings, knowing it was the right call to make, but still being very upset about it. But, 
you know, how quickly everything shifted over and how, you know, our city has responded by doing, you know, takeout and having, you know, people able to still, you know, still patron their favorite restaurants, but it just looks a little different now. But if you look at the city as a whole, I mean, the, the state of Texas as a whole, and how the governor is still <clears throat> standing by his decision to open back up. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how the conversation will switch soon, because if we see saw like when we opened back up, then Memorial Day happened and it was a really big influx in cases. And then also like, I am sure they're going to try to spin the narrative that the reason why numbers are going back up is because of all the protests. But if we see and look at the protests, especially here in Austin, the one that Houston Tillotson, every single person wore a mask or you were given a mask as you walked in and all the precautions were taken. And so just, just the narrative around how the numbers have been increasing and why the numbers have been increasing. It's just been really interesting to watch that. And scary. Yeah. And scary to watch, you know, the, the mayor, you know, it's, it's an interesting place for the council because normally in, in Austin system, the mayor doesn't really have independent power. The power rests with the council as a body, which has its set of challenges. You, you, things end up getting done a little slower and there's a lot more debate. And, but I think that's not bad. I think that's good for democracy, but this emergency orders world that we're in, weirdly, the mayor's in charge in a way that is not typically how the system works. And, and the same kind of applies to the governor. Normally, the governor doesn't really have a lot of independent authority. And insiders who work at the legislature kind of have acknowledged that for many years, that really the lieutenant governor is the one that has more power because of the way he can manage the Senate. But the governor is, is more of an administrator, and it doesn't really have independent authority until the orders come in. And now... Governor Abbott is acting like a, a, a Timpot dictator. I mean, we are in an authoritarian dictatorship right now. Mm-hmm. And watching the governor swing back and forth from uh, the strength of the Texas system is our reliance on local control, which is where he started in this pandemic. When he was resisting statewide orders, that's what he said. Uh, you know, San Antonio is different than Houston is different than Dallas. And, and they should be able to, and that's the strength of the Texas system. And it was like two days later, that he did an order that had the phrase sole authority. Can you imagine in a democratic system any order that says, I have the sole authority to? It's, it's gross. It's absolutely gross. And then to get into this last week, I can't, I can't even. I can't even, Brie. I can't even. <laughs> he, he, well, I, I put a, I, my statement on Twitter was, um, does the, is the governor actually Glinda the Good Witch? Turns out we had the power within us all along. Like the governor's really saying that he intentionally left a loophole in his orders and he was waiting around for cities to figure out the loophole was there? Yep. Like it's, 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 it's not believable, but for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. Specifically, earlier in the pandemic, Dallas was enforcing their orders on a business. That business owner, as it turned out, had some connections into the right-wing media, blew the whole thing up, and Abbott changed his order to protect her. So no governor. Governor, we cannot go seeking loopholes because you have already shown that if we find them, you'll just change your order. Mm-hmm. So no, this is not a game. This is not acceptable. I'm not, I'm not, this is not a Dan Brown novel where I got to, pick apart the clues you've left in your emergency right. orders. It's ridiculous. It's not a choose your own adventure out here. Like 
He made a statement yeah. about DACA last, over the weekend, and I read it, and I was like, weren't you the same governor saying we're not accepting refugees? Like, I was just like, <laughs> just, the, just the statements he comes out with sometimes. I'm like, I can't keep up some days. I'm like, I mean, I have, I have come to appreciate that people think they care about hypocrisy, but they don't actually care about hypocrisy. No, not They really just care what's in it for them and how does it benefit their families and their own lives in the moment. And, you know, I, I can't hate on that. That's kind of basic economics. People make their decisions based on, on their, own, their own interests. But, but for the governor to not just not to be hypocritical, which a lot of politicians do, and I try hard not to do that myself, but you can slip up sometimes, but for him to intentionally like wink and say, ah, good job, Judge Wolf. You found it. Mm -hmm. Give give this guy a pretzel. Like, I don't know what the hell this is good game. The governor thinks it is that we're playing. And, and you know, the sad part is people are going to die. That's the sad part. And well, I also think about, you know, when the state opened back up, I, I, my friends and I are talking, like, it's, it felt a lot like because he didn't want all these people to be able to collect unemployment on during, you know, the pandemic of like, well, if we open everything back up, they can all go back to work. And you're like, well, it's not safe. Like, you are willing to put your people that you are basically in charge of in the state at risk so that the economy can continue. And But yet, knowing that a lot of people are going to die. So... It was, it was, it's just been so interesting and terrifying, like you're saying. And again, right, you watch. can go into the, into the hip, hypocrisies and go back and be like the same people who were claiming that Obamacare had death panels are now saying grandma should die for the economy. But, but again, Brie, nobody cares about hypocrisy. As it turns out, nobody cares about hypocrisy. What they care about is what is the best thing to do right now? Mm -hmm. And so I try in my work to stay focused on what is the best thing to do right now and not be in this unending cyclone of relitigating the past because ultimately you just, you just devolve into camps. Everyone stops listening. Let's get excited about what, what we can do moving forward. And, and the pandemic I think is showing that our systems were broken. Kind of all of them, frankly. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why we didn't see it or the folks who did see it couldn't build the movement to get change was that enough people were were comfortable? That it, that it there wasn't enough reason to change a system that led to them being comfortable. Well, now it's clear, ain't nobody comfortable now. So this this is the time to really go back and look at these systems and say, you know what, I I could see that that was broken, but I didn't know how broken, and now I see that that is worth fixing. Yeah. It had to be very in your face. And I think that's, you know, it's everything right now between the pandemic, unemployment rates, the Black Lives Matter movement, like everything had to, we literally all had to sit still and watch it in order for, like you're saying, more people to care enough to start making changes into it. And, you know, as someone who has listened to city council meetings for a while, it was so interesting to see how many of like my friends who typically don't were tuning in now, like when all these really big things have been happening. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's really been a wake-up call to people. I think a lot of people are way more interested in what's happening in their cities, especially with this being an election year and a lot of runoff elections taking place this, well, next month here in Texas. Well, yeah, and it's just, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited to see. I mean, I'm hopeful. It's heavy, but hopeful for me right now, like feeling very overwhelmed, but then also like, I feel like a lot of change is going to come out of this. Hopefully. Well, and, you know, I, I, I want to acknowledge the, you know, I've gotten pretty close with some of my colleagues on these issues and not just in the last couple of weeks, but being the chair of the judicial committee and, and exploring uh, uh, court reform, which we did some pretty major work there. Um, the, the amount of emotional labor involved 
for for black people, but all all brown people, especially black people, like the emotional labor is not something easily understood unless you're in it. And I have had some some amazing conversations with with black and brown community leaders to better understand and incorporate that 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 knowledge in my own head. So you know I I well I'll just I'll just put it this way, Bree. You you don't have to keep explaining it to white people. You can send your white people to me. I will I will explain it to them. It's perfectly fine. This is part of my emotional labor. I take it on willingly. Thank you. This is how you be a good ally, white people. Take off. Uh, I know, not to go off on a tangent, but about a month or two ago, this white woman who I've known for a while, I had made a post of like, white people, literally Google. Like, stop asking black people to explain everything yeah. to you. And she like got all pissy about it. And before I could even respond, my friend Mel stepped in who's a white woman she's like you were literally asking brianna to excuse your privilege and like they had like a whole argument and i didn't have to say yeah. anything and i was like this is how this is all we ask for <laughs> someone else step up and do the work because it's exhausting so thank you people go talk to jimmy stop talking to your black friends about th- unless they want to <laughs> but i'm always going to say google is free send jimmy an email <laughs> reach That's out right. to mel <laughs> it's it's my job i'm on i get paid by the public to answer my emails and I got, my staff thinks we've gotten over 15,000 emails in the last two weeks. Oh my gosh. And we have worked hard to, to try and respond to every single one of them. Yeah. And, and I'll say to, to the credit of Austinites, or at least to the credit of my district, the folks who, who, who had very strong feelings that we were entering an area of reform that was going to fail. They were very short. When I given the opportunity to engage and reply with, well, you know, some of that's misinformation, so let's clarify that part. But let's actually talk about how this is going to help. Because when I talk to my constituents in far northwest Austin, they're, they're frustrated they don't see more police. Mm. They, they, they're like, how come we can't get neighborhood patrols? Why, can't, why does it take 10 minutes to get to a response if I come home and my house has been burglarized? They're, they're not happy with their level of police service now. And, and the problem is, for decades, maybe 400 years, one might say, the only answer the public has ever been given to solve those problems is more police. Mm -hmm. And we're learning that that's just not a sustainable model. It's not sustainable for the officers who now we have been asked, we asked to be social workers and mental health counselors and and, uh, uh, car mechanics and like all these things. Well, why don't why aren't we building systems that target the response to the need? And once you start digging into this, as we are starting to dig into it, yeah, it turns out that we could actually provide service in a much better way and cheaper way. Because these poor officers, man, what we put them through through training and the equipment and you know all that, it's just a very expensive profession, and they're not always the right tool for the right problem. And that's true in all of our public safety agencies, frankly, there's parts of the fire department that, that have grown in ways that we could probably be smarter. And there's, you know, EMS is can, at least in Austin, is a third service. In most cities, it's part of the fire department. So we have a little bit different of conversation with, the, with EMS, which, you know, is, is, is overburdened. And to that point, of the three agents, police, fire, and EMS, only EMS tracks with population growth. That's the only one. The issues that you have police solve and the issues that you have fire solve track with other metrics. So for fire, it's really more about land area. How long will it take to get a fire truck to a fire? Because there aren't that many fires 
Mm. But when there is one, you need a fire truck nearby. So it's, it's not about how many people are in the buildings. It's how far away is the nearest fire station. It's not a population question. Police is far more complicated only because we ask them to do so many jobs. I don't have a quick answer, but that's the work we're about to get into. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to someone yesterday about, you know, policing and how differently it looks now. I mean, the history of police, I've talked about it before on the show. Like the originally were put into place to return slaves back to the people who put, who enslaved them. And it's like quickly grown. But then also it's, how interesting it is that police only come to neighborhoods when something is wrong. Like they're not living there. They are not doing, you know, like the old beat cops who's like actually be in the community learning who lives there, you know, connecting with their community members. And so looking at it that way too, like when did, when did that switch happen too? Cause I mean, even me growing up in Connecticut, like I didn't know the officers who like patrolled my area, but like it was people who lived in our neighborhood. So like it was that like even that sort of conversation. So like I couldn't even tell you what an officer who patrols my neighborhood now, who they are, what they look like, any of those sort of conversations. So I'm a big believer in like, how are you supposed to help people if you don't know who they are? And so also like if you come into these neighborhoods and don't know the fabric of each neighborhood, you're really like doing a disservice to the people you're supposed to be serving. So. And I will say, you know, in fairness to the officers, I know officers that do, do that work. Yeah. But for a variety of factors out of their control, we have made it impossible. Yeah. I'm going to give you a few because it's so pervasive that once you start to unpack it, you start to realize how it's all connected. Mm. This, the, the idea that you have a beat cop that's getting to know people. How do you do that in a auto focused suburbanized area? It's too big to get out and walk. Yeah. So you're, you're in your car and you're driving around. You don't really get to meet people. Then, because we have put so many jobs on the police department, all you have time for is to respond to calls. So you're out responding to calls for stuff that don't have to be a police officer, so you don't have the time to do the community engagement work that you wish you could do. And in Austin, we have a special part of the police department that only does that, our district representative program. And they do it. They go to community meetings, they go to HOA meetings, they are in, you know, they share their cell phone number with HOA leaders and community members, and they have a very specific geographic area that they're responsible for. And they do a great job. They do a great job, and they, but they still have to do a lot of things. And, and there are parts of the department that I think are doing stuff we want them to do. There are parts of the department where we're asking them to do stuff officers shouldn't have to do. And then, you know, there's, there's definitely just more structural direct to the issue problem about you know, what type of equipment and tactics are being used in certain situations, all of that stuff is going to get unpacked, but it's, it's not about your favorite officer being that. We, we, the system is failing everybody. It's failing the officers. It's failing the, the city management. It's failing our neighborhoods. It's failing black and brown communities. And it's, and it's bigger than racism, but racism is in there. Absolutely. And I, and I always feel like I have to give the caveat of like, I don't hate police. <laughs> like I have officers in my family. I think they do serve, they do do important work, but like you're saying, it's, we are expecting them to do so much. And I think that's the conversation a lot of people are missing in the whole like defunding the police. Cause I think a lot of people think it's just getting rid of them. It's like, no, taking a look of look at how are we overburdening the police? Where can we be reallocating funds? How can we be making, you know, making it easier for everyone who lives in these communities to, to do the work? So, yeah. I'll give you an you. example that I, that I think people like. 
the, it, it's often spoken about as like mental health. Well, how, maybe we'll change how we'll do mental health response. That is going to be more complicated than we can solve in six weeks as we head into budget adoption in August. But there is some stuff. You know, there was an officer who posted on social media that there was a, a disabled car on the side of the road and they pulled over and they helped the guy and they kind of helped get him a tank of gas at the nearest gas station. It was very nice. It was very heartwarming. But why is the officer having to do that? Why is that the officer's job? There's another program that TxDOT runs called Hero. And they patrol state highways helping disabled vehicles get out of the road because from TxDOT's perspective, a disabled vehicle just causes more traffic. Get them out of the way. You'll actually, you might not have to build that extra lane if you just move disabled vehicles really, really fast. Well, maybe we should invest more in that program and have them come with like tire inflation stuff and battery jumpers and where it's basically like an auto, an emergency auto service so that you're not forcing officers to also have to take that on because in their heart, they want to help someone who's in distress. And, and that's, that's the protect and serve part of the motto. But we've, we're asking them to do too many things. And so there are other ways. And it's not just about mental health. And it is certainly not about the kind of straw man that, that some folks put up with like, well, when there's a guy with a gun in your house, you're going to want, nobody is saying that you wouldn't send a police officer in that situation. In fact, that's, that's the point. The, the problem is, is that if you come home and your house was burglarized and you were on vacation, do you have to send an officer to that? The person who did it's long gone. Maybe we send a civilian who's trained in collecting evidence and who can, un, who can help you uh, uh, fill out your insurance. I mean, like, and frankly, all states should pay for that service. Why are taxpayers paying for that service? All states should pay for it. Like this is the, like the system upon system upon system that if we really get into it, we can find a much better way to do all this. stuff. What else is there to say? <laughs> 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 Literally that's it. That's, that's all the words I, I could possibly. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I do want to switch gears and talk about project connect. Cause I know yes. you brought it up as a, as a thing to talk about. To be honest, I do not even know what Project Connect is. I'm going to come in honestly and vulnerably and just be sitting and ready to learn because I feel like I sort of know, but I don't know. So that, that is okay. You know, who we don't have the time to pretend anymore. Sure don't. We all just got to be authentic and straightforward and do it with an open heart in a way that we don't hold grudges. That's just what we got to do. And I know I, I tend to rub some people the wrong way because that's just how I approach a lot of stuff and, and people can get a little butt hurt about it, but you know, I'm not holding a grudge. I hope nobody else holds a grudge. Let's just get, let's get, get to the end so we can help this community. So that, that being said, Project Connect is the big plan for public transportation. And we have approved the plan. We are still debating the funding. So there was some really bad hacky reporting from a not news site that calls itself news that claimed the council was going to raise your taxes by 25%. That is not true. We haven't even decided what we're putting on the ballot. And most importantly, the council is not making this decision. The voters will make the decision. So let's all just take a breath. But the plan, the plan is amazing. And I, I said this in the day we adopted it, which I was about two or three weeks ago, because we, weren't, we haven't just been working on policing, right? We've been also setting the vision for the future of transportation. You mean you can chew gum and walk at the same time? You can do multiple things and get other things done? Uh, 
said sarcastically. I, you know, yeah, I'm going to let that one go because I have thoughts and feelings about who can't do that, but they don't need to be dragged through right now. Uh, <laughs> That's the, <funny. laughs> um, the plan is amazing, right? So the short version you have, uh, and I'm going to describe the big ultimate vision. This is not necessarily everything that goes on the ballot, so nobody freak out. But the big ultimate vision, you have three lines of light rail. It goes from Tech Ridge to Slaughter Lane, right down the spine of the city. So think North Lamar to Guadalupe to South Congress. Boom, top to bottom. You then have a line that parallels that, so same tracks uh, on the north side, and then it cuts out to the east and goes to the airport. So train to the airport. And then you have a gold line, which parallels orange, but to the east. And the orange line is the main one, the right in the middle. You have a gold line, which if built would go uh, kind of up Trinity, up to Highland Mall. That, that I would say likely not going to be rail on the ballot, that last one. But orange and blue, which is spine of the city is orange, blue is the jog out to the airport. Those are pretty essential components. But we're still working through kind of how far do you go all the way to Tech Ridge in the first item? Do you do, you do a kind of a minimal operatable segment first in order to get things started? So that debate is happening. But it's not just that. There's also improved bus lines. There's improved uh, commuter service. There's uh, including the green line, which is like the red line, but goes out east to Mainer. There's uh, neighborhood circulators. There's new park and rides. It really touches every corner of the city. And, and every part of the city will benefit from, from this project. But there is a big question about the funding, and it's a valid question. But I don't think, as I said when we adopted the plan, we can't just yada, yada, yada the plan and just talk about the cost. Because this city has never had a public transportation plan like this, where basically everybody's looking at each other saying, yeah, if, if it were free, we would absolutely do it. It's the right idea. And, and so that's a big moment. So now we just got to figure out how much we're willing to pay and how much of it we want to get done first. As a girl from the Northeast, I'm obsessed with public transportation because it's literally oh, how you get from and, the And it has part of a subway. Did I tell that part? Did I mention the subway See, part? you did not. <laughs> did not. It's downtown tunnel, so it would be underground from MLK to the river. <laughs> you ain't moving to Philly now, girl. You sticking around. <laughs> like, goodbye, car payment. Goodbye, insurance. Uh, it would just, life-changing. Just, I mean, even just, you know, maybe like a year ago, there was a conversation around, you know, making better sub, um, sidewalks and that whole conversation and how, how pivotal that is into public transportation. And I don't think a lot of people think about that. Like, if there's not sidewalks, it's like unwalkable and you know, especially for those who are in wheelchairs, like it's not realistic for them to, to do that. And so just hearing all of these beautiful ideas that are coming about, I'm like, just pay for it. I don't know how it's going to get paid for, but. Uh. Let's talk about the tunnel for a second because, because it's not a cheap element, right? The tunnel yeah. is expensive. And, and there's a lot of, I think, confusion around what it means to have underground transportation in Texas. What we know for sure, we know that the soil and geology underneath downtown is perfect for tunneling. It's perfect. And we know that because we did the Waller Creek drainage tunnel, which mm -hmm. was a ginormous tunnel to help control floodwaters. And, but for some contractor concrete issues, 
the tunneling itself, it's like perfect conditions. So we know we don't have the, because some people think, oh, Texas, the uh, limestone's too hard. Well, actually, it's not. It's actually kind of perfect. So we know that the, the geology is fine. We also know Dallas is now looking at doing a tunnel. So the DART system, which has been around for a while now, it's one of the biggest systems in the nation in terms of like how far out it goes. Obviously, like places like New York have more density of lines, but it pretty goes far. And Dallas has now hit the wall. They can't run more service. They can't even extend the service farther because they can't get enough trains through the core part of the system if they're also in conflict with buses and cars. Mm. So now Dallas is having to retrofit their system with an underground transit facility in downtown Dallas. And it is going to be orders of magnitude more expensive than if they had just built it that way to begin with. So I am, I am confident that it is a necessary step because it's, ine it's inevitable that it'll be needed and it'll be never cheaper than it is now. But also if we ever want this system to expand, you have to go underground now. Why put the trains in the same lanes of the cars in that kind of densest part of the city where there's just no other option? Mm -hmm. So it, and then the, like the renderings are beautiful and it'll have like a mezzanine area and like live music and restaurants, all that kind of stuff, right? All that cool stuff. But ultimately it's about system capacity and having that segment underground means you can actually run uh, an adult real city transportation system, which is what we need. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. <laughs> it's an amazing place. I'm telling you. Every time I'm trying to pack it up and leave, here y'all come. <laughs> I've been joking with a friend. Like, it's like I've been in like a quote unquote bad relationship with Austin. I was like, I'm leaving. And now it's like, no, but we can be better. And this is how, <laughs> this is how we can be better. Just give us another chance. And like, dang it. <laughs> God, that sounds ugh, so beautiful. I mean, and also, like, if we think about just, you know, how Austin is this really kooky place of, like, you know, keep Austin weird, and then the amount of recycling and compost and vegan restaurants, and I'm like, why don't we really like talking about public transportation? So, like, now here we are, and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm you excited. can go back, right? Like, this city has been talking about public transportation for a long time, right? It was 20 years ago that there was a light rail item on the ballot that failed. And it was basically the orange line. It was gonna follow the route that we're following now. And that particular election in 2000, I was a student at the University of Texas. So I, I wasn't involved in the politics, but I was like observant of it. Mm. And the, 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 the strategy at the time was to run that election just through Cat Metro. So it actually, the whole region got to vote, all of the participating cities. And in 2000, the city of Austin voted yes but the outlying cities voted no, and so the whole thing failed 20 years ago. Then, 2014, there was that other rail idea. In the intervening time, they built the red line, but it, the red line is a tough comparison. It runs to my district, and my folks ride it, but it is, it is, it is heavy rail commuter. It is, not, it is not a urban transportation system. It is a component, but it ain't the model. The, the 14 race, the 14... Uh, I was, I was running for office on that same ballot. That was my first campaign. That was the first year of 10-1. And I went to all the meetings. I went to City Hall and I sat in on all of the public meetings on that line. And for those who recall, the 2014 map had one line on it. That's what was being sold to the public. And it was Highland Mall through downtown out to the airport. That was being sold. 
And I went to, I was on the Chamber of Commerce Transportation Committee at the time, and I went to them and I was like, look, I, I get that we need to grow up and we need to have legitimate public transportation, but tell me where it goes next. I know you can't build the whole thing at once, but tell me what we're planning for so that I know that what we build in phase one is compatible with what we want in phase two. And I was told by someone who is still very influential and powerful in local politics, who I will not name, I was told there's no plan to go north of Highland Mall. And living in District 6 in the far northwest area, I live in Williamson County, Highland Mall is the center of town. Like geographically, it is the center. The river is not center. Mm -hmm. The river is south. Two-thirds of the city is north of the river. It's not evenly split through. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's insane. But the thing you just told me is insane. And I ended up not supporting that item in 14 because it was a bad plan. It was just a bad plan. And that is not the challenge we have now. We have a great plan. We have a plan that's spent the last two years vetted with the community, more public engagement than has ever been done on a transit item. We have a plan that is thoughtful about the future. And ultimately, it's not going to be cheap. But this is, this is the choice that will be before the voters. And how expensive? is yet to be decided and the council takes that vote in early August. Not to endorse things and push push my own agenda, but if y'all don't vote for Project Connect, you're no longer allowed to listen to this podcast. So <laughs> you live here in Austin and you're not for <laughs> Project Connect. I thank you for listening this long. Um, but it's and it's been real, but I am breaking up with you. <laughs> and uh you know no bad blood i will pack up your stuff you know we can end amicably but uh we're done so thank you so much for the years um but yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh i could talk to you all day we have done this and talked for hours we have we have so i won't make everyone sit here and listen to us for seven hours so <laughs> i think this is where i'm gonna wrap things up i will be sure to link to all the things you talked about from your website to all the things going on here in austin to where people can find you um i thank you for your time but there's one more question i like to ask my guests before we part ways as a sort of palate cleanser and ending on a high note and the question is, what is the best advice you were ever given or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Ooh. That's a tough one. So <laughs> everyone tells me. <laughs> like, I know this is why I put it in here. <laughs> I've, give, I've been given a lot of good advice. Yeah. And I have never been shy to ask. Uh, I don't always take advice. <laughs> I'll listen, yeah. you know. But, I, but I'll ask. Um, I mean, I think just, just generally, right? Like the, the, power, the power of listening and, and really leaning in on what people are saying. This, is, this has been my kind of guiding principle. If folks are coming to you with an idea you don't understand, don't fight. Listen and lean in. And you will find, as I have often found, that you actually agree. But the difference is because you're thinking of a different example. 
And you only get to learn that if you start by maintaining linguistic space for agreement. If you come back with someone saying you're dumb and look, someone will listen to this podcast, will go screenshot my Facebook and they'll find when I've done this. I don't do it perfectly. But when you do that, you no longer are having a conversation. You have to maintain that linguistic space for agreement and you will find that you almost always do agree. And lean in. White people, lean in. That's what you got to do. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Please, let's get together when all this is calm down slash whatever the new normal looks like because I think I'm finally ready to to take the advice you've been giving me for years and I won't get into it today. <laughs> hey now. Well, I, I can have you come on my show. I would so, love it. As you know, I do a weekly live show on Facebook and YouTube called The Clawback. I've been doing it since October. Um, since the pandemic, we actually bring guests onto that show. And so it's been pretty amazing. And we do live music. So I bring an Austin musician on, a local musician. And, and my last couple of musical guests, I don't want to, I mean, all my musical guests have been amazing, but the last couple of guests have been just completely out of control. And I, you know, go, go check it out. You can follow my Facebook and YouTube. It's called The Clawback. Um, we cover all the, all the heavy issues. And then the last thing, and I hope you include this in your podcast, the, the voting locations for this runoff and special election are different. Your usual polling place may not be open. Go look it up. Be prepared. There's only five or six races on the ballot. That means you can be informed. You have the time to figure out who you want. I'll, I'm making endorsements. I'm going to be publishing them on my website soon. I won't have to mention them here, but you can look those up too, jimmyflanagan.com. But look up your polling place because they are different than they normally are. And everybody go vote. Everybody go vote. Vote. That's another thing. If you don't vote, you are, again, we're breaking up. There's not much <laughs> I ask for here. Uh, that's it for this week's episode of the tea with Bree. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the tea with Bree. Send me an email at the tea with Bree at gmail.com and visit the website, the tea with Bree podcast.com. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to mama Duke for our theme music. And I will talk to y'all later this week. Bye. <laughs>